0: If you've been with us for the last few, few weeks or so, we've been talking about, we've been asking this question simply, who is Jesus? And as you, as you think about it, it's, it's almost like a weird question to ask in, in the context of church because you'd expect that question outside, right? But we claim to be Christians. Shouldn't we have figured this out by now? right? It's, it's almost, but it's such a great reminder, such a great I- insight into what Paul is writing, and he talks about who Jesus is and how he, who, his identity has an impact, has implications on who we are and how we live. And so the first week, we talked about Jesus being the image, the imprint of the living God, God that we may not be able to see with our own eyes, we may not be able to touch, but here's Jesus leaving His glory above, coming to this earth, taking on the form of a man, being there so that we can experience him, so that we can read about him, so that we would be redeemed into him. And then we moved on to the next week where we talked about some of the questions that life throws at us, some of the questions that we grapple with, and Jesus being the answer to it all. And today we're going to r- jump right back into, into the passage. And so we're going to be in Colossians chapter 1, but we're not going to get there just yet. I'm to th- today we're going to do a little, something a little different, and so I hope you track with me. But before I do that, I have a question. I'd like to start off with a question. When is the last time you truly felt successful? Take a moment. Think about that. When you felt like, oh, I accomplished that. As you think about that, let me ask you, how do you define success? What does success mean to you? And for some of us who are sitting here, we're thinking through our our life, we're thinking through, you know, got through high school, we got through college, and then got our college, we got our job, and then we've, we've met the right person, and then we got married, and, you know, that progression, we think about that progression. For some of us, we just jump right all over the place, and but yet we still accomplish quite a bit, some of us. That road was not so nice. It it took us through some deep valleys, some rough moments, but yet here we are today. When's the last time you felt successful? For me, I'll I'll be honest, uh, right now, right this moment, I'm feeling very successful. And I'll tell you why. Because of that thing right there. Yeah! Okay, so now there's this whole section here that's looking at it going, what are they talking about? Now, if you had been here before, let's say, mid-August, that sound booth was up there, about 10 feet up in the air. Um, It had been like that for the last 30-somewhat years, held together by a bolt and a prayer. And I'm not kidding. (laughs) It was... It was a surreal and a crazy moment when we went to remove that, and one of them pulled the bolt out by his hand. We we were thankful. We were grateful for God's many protections. But all that to say, um, I just want to take a moment to thank the team. I mean, there are so many of you who helped, who jumped in, I mean, talk about, tearing it down and building it back up. All the technology, everything that went into it, I am so appreciative. There are a couple of people that I want to thank personally. I mean, they, they put in countless number of hours. Chris Hannafin, he's not here. He usually attends our first service. Um, he did pretty much, he built the whole thing by hand. And so I want to appreciate him and Troy. <laughs> Troy there helped reimagine a lot of the the audio and the video and kind of helped we had this vision of what this would look like and these two gentlemen and then there's a ton of people here. I mean talk about sledgehammers and saws and lifts and everything. It happened, we're here, we're all in one piece. Praise God. Amen. Yeah. So we all love this feeling of success right? We put our hands to something, we we, uh, plan it, we uh, come around, we get people around us, we attack a problem, we solve it. Yes, that's a good, good feeling. Sometimes, You know, there are problems that are too big for us, and so we'll consult the YouTube tutorials and all of that, or we'll go speak to experts, we'll talk, we'll bring mentors around us, we'll read books, leadership, seven essentials, and all of those things, and those things are good. Recently, for me personally, I was reading this article, and the author in this article compiled a list of big personalities, big uh, successful people, and the question simply was this, how do you define success? And so they had these one statement answers, I mean, some, of, some people from history, some people of contemporary. Uh, the first one, Winston Churchill, success is going from failure to failure without losing enthusiasm. <laughs> For some of us, that's the story of our lives. I mean, the minus enthusiasm part. But, but we relate to that. Um, John Wooden, success is peace of mind, which is direct result of self-satisfaction in knowing that you did your best to become the best you are capable of becoming. A good, encouraging quote. Maya Angelou, success is liking yourself, liking what you do And liking how you do it. Or Stephen Covey, if you consider what, if you carefully consider what you want to be said of you in the funeral experience, you will find your definition of success. That's a good one. It's a good thing to think about how we define success. A lot of us define success based on our personalities, based on our experiences. Maybe you're an alpha, you're a beta, like depending on how you attack problem, how you see the world, how you were raised up, that's how we define success. But my question today is not necessarily success in life as a whole. My question is this, what does success look like within the church? How do you define it? How do you define success within the context of the church, within the context of Christianity? See, a lot of us are in, in different possession, uh, possessions, in professions and such. And so, where we could say, if we're in finance, hey, money is our qualifier. A certain amount of money and all of that, that's finance. Or if you're in education, a certain number of, whether you're a teacher or whether you're learning, that defines your success, whether you're in the medical field, and all of those, there are quantifiable ways of determining success. But come back to the church. How do you define success? What does success look like when you leave here on a Sunday morning, and you look back and say, that was it. That was a great Sunday. I feel accomplished. What makes you leave this, this room, and say, this is how it should be. How do you define that? You see, in the Christian world, and especially for those of us in ministry, those of us who are vocationally, uh, we serve the Lord and uh, we serve the community in the context of a local church or as a missionary or in, the, in a nonprofit capacity, The reality is, it's hard. It's hard to define what success really looks like. It's hard to pinpoint and say, okay, if we had this certain metric, then we're successful. So we do, we take the easy way out. What we do, we count. We do things like, we'll count the number of people that are in this room right now. And one of the ushers will probably have already gone by, counted that, and on Monday or Tuesday or Wednesday, whenever we look at the reports, we'll look at it and go, oh, that was a great Sunday. There were a lot of people here, a lot of visitors, and and we see that as success. Or I'll count numbers like how many people got baptized this year. How many people made decisions for the Lord? How many people enrolled in in base camp? Or how many people will attend lunch today? Shameless plug, come to lunch today. (laughs) Like big numbers. Um, We look at all those things and say, okay, that's success. But is it really? Is that success? Having a good number... Having a lot of attendance, having a lot of response, is that success? Because if we really think about it, and a lot of us sitting here, especially for those of us who've been around church and who've been around people, we know that bigger doesn't always mean better. We've seen ministries that do extremely well, they attract a big crowd, they attract big talent. But somewhere along the way, something falls apart, and we realize that everything was not as it seemed. But then on the other side, you have small churches and small ministries that that do exactly what God is calling them to do. And they're speaking truth and speaking grace into situations, and yet people leave them. So where do we define, how do we define Success. You see, when we we talk about counting and all of that, don't get me wrong, it's good. It's good for us to have numbers like that because it kind of gives us a gauge of where we are. Are we doing things right? Are we engaging in the right way? Those are things that are good, but that, if we're honest, doesn't really define success. Well, at least from our perspective. So let's talk about from your perspective. So you come in on a Sunday morning, how do you define it? How often have we had conversations like, hmm, music, that bass player was way off today. <laughs> Where's Johan? I'm just kidding, Johan. <laughs> or pastor had a lot of harsh words to speak today. Or I walked in and walked out and no, no one said a word to me today. That was a rough day. And we look at it and see that day as a failure. Or we come in and music was on point. Pastor was preaching. I mean, he was just phenomenal today. And, and, and everyone just was surrounded the person in love. And you see that as success. But is it really? Let's take a look at what Scripture has to say. We're going to turn to the book. I know we're in, in the book of Colossians, but we're going to backtrack a little bit. So we're going to go into the book of 2 Kings. But before we get there, let me, let me give you a little bit of context. Now, 2 Kings is not even in the same Testament. It's in the Old Testament. It's way ahead of, way, way back. Uh, you're talking hundreds of years. You're talking five, 700 years before, excuse me, Jesus got, comes on the scene And here we have the author, basically what he does is he's chronicling the different kings, hence the name kings. He's chronicling the kings of Israel. Now, unique thing about Israel, it's not just Israel. Israel at this point, what we know from from all of history is they're broken up into two kingdoms. There was a big falling out and now there are two. They're the north and the south. Now, what the the chronicler he's doing, he's writing down these kings, and he has an interesting pattern to the way he's writing it. This is what he does. So if you look at a certain king, he'll tell you, okay, he'll introduce this king. This is who he is. This this is his father. This is his mother. And this is how, how old he was. This is how long he reigned. And then immediately after that, you don't have to read his entire story. Second Kings will tell you, give you a value judgment. He was a good king. He was a bad king. So let's just kind of quickly explore. So let's read 2 Kings 15. It's not on the slides for a reason. We get to pick up our Bibles. It's page 300 and I'll tell you in a sec. So we're in 2 Kings chapter 15. Worse, it's page 321 in the black Bibles in front of you. So 2 Kings chapter 15, we're going to do a quick exercise, all right? So I'm going to read chapter 15, verse 1, and we're looking for three things. Name, we're looking for the introduction, we're looking at how long he reigned, and what the value judgment is. Ready? We're good? All right, let's try this. In the 27th year of Jeroboam, king of Israel, Azariah, the son of Amaziah, king of Judah, began to reign. So who are we talking about? Good job. Azariah. We're talking about Azariah. He was 16 years old. How old? 16. And when he began to reign, he reigned 52 years in Jerusalem. His, name, his mother's name was Jecholiah of Jerusalem, and he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that his father Amaziah had done. What's the value judgment? Success or failure? Success. Success. Great. Now, let's try another king. Uh, Let's jump down to verse 17. In the 39th year of Azariah, king of Judah, Menahem, the son of Gadi, began to reign over Israel, and he reigned 10 years in Samaria. How many? Who are we talking about? We're talking about Menahem. Menahem. And how many years? Great. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And so you have this pattern where he goes through and he's chronicling the kings. And he says, this person reigned, this is how long he reigned, and this is what he did. So essentially giving us a picture of success or failure within the kingdom. Now, now, most of these kings, I mean, they all had, they leaned one way or the other. Some of them were truly evil. Most of them were right somewhere in the middle. Some of them did what was good in the sight of the Lord. But all of them had qualifiers. Some were just truly evil. Some of them, they did what was right, but did not do it all the way. Some of them did what was right in the sight of the Lord, but did not tear down the high places. They left the idols there. They said, you know, we've gotten this right. We'll leave that for another day. There's that story. And then we come to chapter 18. And this is where we're going to park here for a second. Chapter 18, 2 Kings 18, 1 through 5. In the third year of Hosea, son of Elah, king of Israel, Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. Who are we talking about? He was 25 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Abi, the daughter of Zechariah. And he did what was in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that his father David, his father, had done. He removed the high places, broke the pillars, cut down the Asherah. The Asherah was one of the high places, the idols that they had been worshiping. And he broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days, the people of Israel had made offerings to it. It was called Nehushtan. He trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that there was none like him among all the kings of Judah after him, nor among those before him. All right, so what's a value judgment? Good. So he's successful. But did you catch something in there? Did anything in that catch your eye? Here's what the author writes. He broke in pieces the bronze serpent that who made? Moses, Moses made. Now wait, Moses is a good guy. He's the good guy in the story. Why are we destroying stuff that Moses made? Wow. That was a rhetorical question. Everyone has answers. Love it. We're tracking. The answer is right. They were worshiping it. So let's go back. We'll, for, for, for the benefit of those of us who may not know the story, we're back, now we're tracking even further back, we're in the, in the wilderness, we're in the desert. So the Israelites, they have left Egypt, Moses led them out of Egypt, He's, we've crossed the sea, now we're in, in the wilderness, and they have been wandering. I mean, they're tired, they're hungry, they're just, they're cranky. I mean, you would be too if you'd wander for 40 years. And, and as a product of all that, They're murmuring, they're complaining, they're angry with God, they're angry with their surroundings. And God had enough of it, and he decides to send judgment. And judgment came in the form of snakes that went through the camp and started killing people. Freaks me out just talking about it. (laughs) And Moses cries out to God saying, God, this is not how the story ends. And so God relents, and he says, all right, let's do this. Let's bring restoration, let's bring redemption, let's, bring, uh, let's fix this. So he says, fashion a bronze serpent, put it up on a stick, and anyone who looks at it will be healed. It's highly symbolic to say, here, this is what God is saying. Come back to me. Quit your murmuring, quit your anger, quit all of the complaining. Come back. There's restoration. There is redemption. There is, uh, He's bringing them all back into the fold. And it's a good thing. There is healing, and people are, again, worshiping God as they should. But what they kept around was the bronze serpent. Now... Rightly so. It's a big part of their history. It's a part of their history that will remind them of the time they complained. That would remind them of the time people perished. It would remind them of how God miraculously healed and touched their land and restored them and redeemed them. But what happens over time is the object that brought healing, the object, the gift of God, Turned to be the object of worship. What was supposed to reflect God's glory is now receiving glory. See the problem there? What was a good thing, what God gave as a gift, now is being worshipped. And God says, no, it can't stand and here comes Hezekiah. Hezekiah comes into the scene and he destroys it. He breaks it into pieces. And one cursory reading of it would say, Why would you bro- destroy such a good thing? Why would you destroy such an integral part of their history? Because it was misused. And as as we're studying these passages, this was a message that that, uh, as as a team we've been dealing with and uh, studying and and God's been speaking through our pastors. and, And here's the message. When the gift of God takes the place of God, he has every right to destroy it. When what we prayed for, what we sought God for, what we cried out for, and we received it, and he was merciful, and he said, you know what, you've been praying for that job. You've been asking, you've been seeking, you've been praying for the right relationship. You've been praying for that house. Here you go. This is my blessing to you. Now, all of a sudden, that has overtaken our passions. That has overwhelmed our time. Now, it's all about the job. It's all about the house. It's all about the relationship. And that's where our energy, and that's where our glory, and that's where all our our effort goes into. And God's looking at that and going, you're worshiping the gift and not the giver. And some of us, if we're honest with ourselves, we're guilty of that. What was meant to reflect the glory of God is now receiving his glory. And God is looking at that situation and saying, I have the right to remove it. You see, in our life, we too, so often we come to church, we exalt what God. God has given us more than we exalt him sometimes. See, the reason we exist, the reason we're here in this room today is to bring him glory. That is our sole purpose. But at times when we come, we're enamored by the music. We're enamored by the preaching. We're enamored by the people. All the while, God getting the back burner. In a moment like that, he sends a Hezekiah to destroy, to bring correction to what has gone wrong. You see, success, defining success is recognizing too far ahead, John. Success is recognizing that it is about Jesus and not about us. It's about recognizing God, the giver, and not the gift that he's given us. Worship the giver, not the gift. And for us, as we talk about defining what success looks like, success within the church, that is one step, is to define to glorify the giver and not the gift success as we move on to the next one is for success is recognizing jesus as the head of the church and this is where we come back into the colossians in colossians chapter one we read colossians chapter one verse 18 paul is saying jesus and he jesus is the head of the body the church so we've been asking this question who is jesus who is he? Well, How do you define him? We talked about him being the image of the invisible God. We, we talked about him being the answer to our questions. And today, here's Paul's answer. He is the head of the church. So let's break it down. What does the head mean? You see, when Paul is talking about the head, he's not just talking, he's using the imagery of a body, but he's not just talking about this head, which, uh, which needs everything else. He's talking about the head as in a governing party. He's talking about the head as in a king. He's talking about the head as in he lays down the law. And what he says goes. And he's saying, looking at the church, the body, Jesus is the head. And if Jesus is the head, then there's an implication on how we live. So often it's... It's a little different when we live here in the US. For me, my personal experience, I lived in the Middle East, I lived in Saudi Arabia, which was a kingdom. And in a kingdom, what the king said goes. In a democracy, it's a little bit different where you can, you can debate and back and forth with a king. There's no debate. What he says is law. And he, Paul is using the same analogy. He's using this imagery, and he says he is the head of the church. And so for us, there is an implication. And so when I talk about how do we define define success within the church, I'm not just asking how do we define success within Mount Hope. I'm not asking how do we define success within uh, the Burlington location of Mount Hope. I'm not asking how do we define success in the 11 a.m. service of the Burlington location at Mount Hope. I'm instead asking, how do we define success as the big C church? The church that includes everybody. The church that includes nations around the world. The church that includes time past and the time to come. Paul says his answer is simply this. He is the head of that church. To say that Jesus is the head is to say That he is Lord. To say that he is the head is to say that he has authority over us. To say that he is the head means he is sovereign, means he is the ruler of the church. You see, this is a struggle that has gone on for for centuries. It's not something new that we're grappling with, it started right in the beginning, in the garden. Who determines how we ought to live? God said, do not sin, do not eat of the tree, and yet man sinned. And that struggle continues over and over again. We see it in the Israelites. We see it in the early church. We see it all throughout church history. One of my favorite reformers of church history was a man named John Huss. Now, if you're familiar with John Huss, John Huss was a bohemian priest, educated man. He had his bachelor's, his master's, and his doctorate back in the 1400s, which was somewhat unheard of for someone so educated. He was a preacher at the town of Bethlehem church in his town. The church was doing well, but what was unique about John was he would not preach in Latin. He decided to preach in the language of his people because at that time, the church was defined by exclusivity. And so it was defined by keeping people out. It was defined by this is who we are. And you have to do all these different things to get in. And John Huss, a man convicted by God... Decided to stand up against it. And the church decided he was not to preach anymore. And when he kept preaching, they decided that no one would get communion anymore. And when he kept preaching, they decided you could not get buried in this church anymore. And they kept doing sanctions after sanctions. And so he finally steps down and he keeps, but he keeps writing. And his writing, he had three big points. One, we are the church. There is no boundaries to this church. There is no only certain people get in. We all get in. If grace has reached us, you're in. It doesn't matter what your color is. It doesn't matter what your, what your legacy is, what your history is. It doesn't matter. You're in. You're part of the church. The second, the struggle of the church in that day was it mattered what the church said and not necessarily what the word of God had to say. And John Huss said, the reigning authority in the church is this book. Anything outside of this book does not go. And his third point was this. In an age where they've been debating over and over who is the head of the church, the church then would have said the pope is the head of the church. John simply stood up and said, Christ is the head of the church. And the church's response was to lead him down, to remove his priestly garments, tie him to a stake, and burn him to death. People have died. People have given their everything for this cause. Jesus is the head of the church. And today when we sit here, we're sitting on that legacy, the fact that we have to fight to define when Paul clearly says, no man, no pastor, and I can say that because Pastor Rick is away, he's not the head. He would say the same thing. Um, He's not the head. Your associate pastor is not the head. Your ministry directors are not the head. Your elders are not the head. Jesus is the head of the church. But you see, there is an implication to that. When we declare that Jesus is the head of the church, what he says goes. And so all of a sudden, we find ourselves where our preferences don't matter anymore. It's what he says. If we decide, you know what, this is how I'm going to serve and this is where I'm available and these are my terms, guess what, in Jesus' economy, it's a little different he tells you he determines how he's going to use you if you decide you know these are the people i like to be around these are the people i like to f- uh, serve and no those preferences go out the window all of a sudden things look a little different <coughs> excuse me jesus is the head of the church and because he is the head of the church the way we live ought to reflect that Jesus is the head of the body, the church. If he is the head of the body, then the body responds to the signals of the head. The body responds to the directions of the head. Our personal preferences have no value compared to the direction of Jesus Christ. It's all about Jesus more than it is about us. Success in Christian life is recognizing that it is about him and not about us. It is about recognizing the giver over the gift. It is about recognizing that Jesus is the giver. He is the head and not us. But why? Why do we worship him this way? See, because the truth is simply this, that there is a work that only he can do And that is the work we need. You see, it's, it's great that we all come together. There are so many of us in this room, but there are also so many of us out, out there. There are people in kids' ministry, ministering to your kids right now. They're pouring into them. They have an exciting service plan for them, and they're just engaging right there. There are people in our student ministry. There are people in our nursery. There are people in our hospitality team. There's people in the, in the cafe and in the, in the media team. They're all, we can come together, and we can put together a phenomenal service. We can have a great. We can have great music. We can have a great talk. We can do all of this. We can come together, have great groups, have great community. There's a lot that we can do together, yes. But there is a work that you and I can do, and then there's the work that he does. And so often, we confuse those two. You see, we can come together, we can do all of this, But if there's transformation that needs to happen, that is the work of Christ. If there is healing that needs to happen, that is the work of Christ. If there's reconciliation that needs to happen, that is the work of Christ. If there is salvation, that is the work of Christ. It comes through him. Success is recognizing that there is a work that only Jesus can do. And honestly, that is the work we need. We can fill our time with serving. We can fill our time with all the busyness. But by doing that, we're sacrificing the work that actually makes a difference. What does success look like as a church? What does success look like as Christians? What does success look like you in the marketplace, you in the hospital, you in the classroom, you in wherever God has placed you? What does success look like? Well, I'll show you this. In John chapter 3, we see it playing out. In John chapter 3, we see a man named John. John was cousins with Jesus. And John had just one job. One purpose in all his life, and that was to proclaim, he is coming. The Messiah is coming. And so John is out there. He's in the wilderness. He's in the cities. He is preaching. He is teaching. He is baptizing people. He is amassing crowds. He has disciples. And all of a sudden, with all of this going on, suddenly, the focus shifts. Right as John is doing all of this, Jesus comes on the scene. And now all of a sudden, Jesus is preaching. Jesus is teaching. Jesus is baptizing. And there's a discussion that's happening between John's disciples and with, with some people there. And this is how it goes. John chapter 3, verse 25 on. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, He who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, he's baptizing, and all are going to him. There's a problem here. Wait, you're the baptizer. Your name is John the Baptist. We call you that for a reason. This is what you do. This is why we're following you. And now the one that you said is coming, he's doing it. And John's answer is simply this. A person cannot receive even one thing unless it's given him from heaven. You yourself bear, to bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. And, in, and I'll skip verse 29 and verse 30. This is what he says. He must increase, but I must decrease. He must increase, but I must decrease. You see, John knew his role. His role was simply to be a signpost. Here is Jesus. And so when I ask that question, what does success look like for us as Christians, for us as ministers, for us as a church? Success is when we recognize our role that we're simply signposts pointing to Jesus. Jesus. Yes, we're your pastors. Yes, we're your ministries we serve. But our job simply is this. Come in, look at Jesus. Look at Jesus, because that's where you will find hope. That's where you will find grace. That's where you will find healing. That's where you will find fullness. That's where you will become whole once again. We have nothing to give you. Here's a little secret. Your pastors can't do anything for you. All we can do is say, He can do it. He must increase. We must decrease. You see, sometimes the object that is meant to reflect the glory of God suddenly starts taking on glory and that's where the system breaks down. That's where failure creeps in. That's where destruction comes in. And God is looking at that situation and saying, I am right to destroy it. And so the question for us this morning is simply this, where in our lives are we hogging the glory? Where in our lives are instead of reflecting, instead of being that signpost, we're saying come see me, come see what I can do, come see how, I, how good I am. Because sometimes if we're truly honest, that's how we behave, We say it's all about Jesus, but in our actions, there's a, hey, look at me. I'm going to call the worship team back up. And as we we prepare to close, let's take a moment. You see, in a group like this, there is a group of us that know that, hey, there is a work that needs to be done. We realize the The reality that in all that we do, we can't fix the problem. We've tried it. We've done everything that we can. We've seen the right people. We've done the right things. We've given the right amounts. We've done all of it. And yet, brokenness. And yet, relationships that need fixing. And yet, financial ruin. And yet, depression. And yet, you fill in the blank. The question is, do you recognize Jesus as the head? What would it look like if we took a moment and we place our selfish preferences and the things that bother us aside and just let God do his work through us? What would it look like if we are simply people that point to him? A signpost receives no glory. People drive past it. People don't stop there, they just look at it and move on, and that's what he's calling us to be simply a signpost. Here he comes, there he is. Go see him. The weird speech, of father and son, Warren and David, they write this, and this is a beautiful quote. Now, I'll end with this here when ministry becomes performance, then the sanctuary becomes a theater the congregation becomes an audience. Worship becomes entertainment, and man's applause and approval become the measure of success. But when ministry is for the glory of God, his presence moves into the sanctuary. Even the unsaved visitor will fall down on his face, worship God, and confess that God is among us. That is our prayer for this church. That is our prayer for Mount Hope. That is our prayer for each and every one of our lives. Wherever God has placed you, that the sign is not pointed inwards, but instead, this is all for the glory of God. Who I am, what I do, who I, what I say, what I think, it's all for the glory of God. And when I come into this room, it's so that he may be lifted up. This morning, this call is simply this. Are there places in your life where you've been trying to do it on your own? Are there places in your life where where God used it at one point and that's where you're stuck? That's what you're glorifying and that's what you think will always be the same. And he's saying, let it go. Worship the giver, not the gift. It's all about Jesus. He is the head of the church. And because he's head, he demands. He demands our allegiance. He demands our movement. He demands that we do as he does. He demands that we live as he lived for the glory of God. So as we close here this morning, take a moment. Don't leave too soon. I know we're closing out. Take a moment. Ask yourself simply this question. Am I functioning truly as that signpost? Because if we're not, then we have some work to be done. If we're not, the Holy Spirit is pointing at us and saying, that needs to be fixed. Because if people are stopping where you are, there's a problem. So let's come to the Lord. Let's come. Let's bow. Let's let's seek Him. Let's cry out to Him. Take a moment. Please do not leave here without having dealt with your heart. Cry out to the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, I need you to do a work in me that only you can do. I've tried this so far, and it hasn't worked. Do your work in me. So I would invite you, as we close out, and I'll pray in a second, as we close out, the team is going to lead us. They're going to lead us in worship. Take that moment to come to these altars. We're, We're here. Pastors and the elders will come lay hands with you. Pray. Take a moment to seek the Lord. Would you bow your heads with me in prayer? Father, we thank you. We thank you for the work that is being done in us and through us. Lord, I thank you for the moments that you have moved miraculously. You have answered miraculously. And Lord, we confess the times where we stood with that miracle, where we took on that miracle and we glorified it more than we glorified you. Lord, I pray that you would forgive us. I pray that you would would heal us. You would restore us. You would help us to repent of those times and help us to move away from it. Help us to come back to you, Lord. Lord, in today, Lord, we surrender our hearts. We surrender our minds. We surrender our wills. We surrender our plans. We surrender our destinies. We surrender our desires of who we are to be and who we are to become In in your presence because after all, you are our head. Lord, I pray that your your will be done in our lives. Speak to us. Do your work in us. Holy Spirit, move in us. And as we sing, Lord, create in us a clean heart. Give us clean hands. Lord, help us. Help us. We ask this in your name, Jesus.